Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. very excited about this topic. Um, I have to admit, it's, while it's something, in a sense, I've thought about a lot, um, I, haven't, I haven't presented on it a lot. It's a, it's a very complex issue. One thing I think we especially need in this day and age, especially need, is good philosophy. Good philosophy helps us sort things out. It helps us think clearly about the things that are most important. A major characteristic of our age is that we do not think clearly. We don't have the right principles for thinking clearly about things. We don't have habits of asking the right questions. The primary customs, the common customs of our age undermine good reasoning, not to mention good human living. It is my major goal and desire and wish in presenting these things to you is to use a little bit of philosophy to help, I hope, you think a little bit more clearly about some things that can, should, make a very big difference in your life. Of you, if you don't have the, the handout, that's okay. Primarily, I just like you to have something in hand and give you a sense of some of the thinkers that I'm using. I'm going to tell you right now this this book that the big quotation here that's from, and I'm going to come back particularly to the bolded line in there several times because I think it's jaw-droppingly good. Is from this uh, gentleman who wrote Friedrich Junger. He's writing it in the 30s. And this is a very fascinating book. It has actually been republished. I didn't put page numbers in mind because I have an original uh, edition, but I I know that it can be found in paperback. It's it's very challenging. If you're interested in that aspect of what we look at, I recommend that you get the book. I also am going to really hope that you ask some questions. Don't hold back. No holds barred in the questions at the end. But in any case, one thing is sure, time is passing. It always is, so let's go ahead and get started. We have a problem. It's always good first to understand what that problem is. There is an intelligent response to this problem, and you know, that's really at the heart of the good news for Christians. There is absolutely no problem that there is not a good response to. Sometimes the response is extremely difficult to discern, but it's always there. So you should always have confidence, no matter what the problem is that I face in life, there is always a reasonable thing to do. Going to the tradition of the four cardinal virtues, the great virtue of prudence, there will always be a prudent answer, approach. There's never anything, anything, anything you can come upon in life where it's just, whoop, there just isn't anything to do here. No, there's always a good thing to do. We have to be willing to work hard and find what it is. 
and it will be a good way to address the problem. It might not solve the problem in the sense of making the problem go away, but it will be a good way to address the problem. I'm going to share with you a problem, and I'm going to make some suggestions as to how we can address it. I'm going to use the terms that I've gotten from this Professor Junger. He makes a distinction between living time and dead time. And my major reflection with you is going to try to think about what the difference is. I'm going to be perfectly frank. If you get the book and you look at it, you might think, mm, I'm not sure that you know, Professor Gutterback had that exactly right or saying exactly what Younger was saying. I'm not sure. Again, it's, it's a very difficult book, but there's a lot of things in there that are very intuitively appealing. And one of them, I think that we can all kind of feel right away. There's something about the way that we tend to live slash experience time. There's something very dead about it. And my whole point with you is to think about how we can make it, as it were, come more alive. We're going to have to work a little bit to clarify these notions. It can be difficult, but it's worth struggling. You can't define a positive reality simply by denying its privation. In other words, vision is not simply being not blind. Similarly, life is not simply being not dead. At the same time, thinking in terms of the privation and certain features of it can focus our attention on certain things we might not have noticed about the positive reality on the other side. In other words, thinking about blindness can help one have a real insight into what it means to see. Living time is time that is not dead. But what is dead time? Dead time, as surely as a dead body, has lost, or in any case it lacks, maybe you can't always use the word lost because it might never have had it, it has lost or doesn't have an intrinsic principle of some sort, something that animates it from within. You know, when you notice in the natural world, dead things, you know, they don't, they don't do much. This really begins to make you look more carefully. Wow, what is it about living things? What constitutes things as alive? They've got this principle in them that animates them, that moves them, that drives them. I suggest that much of our time these days could be called, in varying degrees, dead time. It lacks an animating principle within it. So you're going to have to, get, and when we're trying to think clearly, you've got to be willing to move with me here. Dead time, you might use that term otherwise yourself sometimes, but you've got to be with me on, what, on how I'm trying to use it here with you. So this time lacks an animating principle within it. Living time, I suggest, has a certain fullness, a sign that our time lacks life is this, and this really helps us feel that we've got a problem. We consistently feel pinched for time. 
don't we? It's as though time itself is pressing on us. It makes us anxious, even breathless. This is not normal, or it might be normal in the sense of common, but something is off. That should not be the way that we experience time. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. One thing only is necessary. I think we can say that Martha wasn't doing anything she should not have been doing, but she was anxious, and that means something was wrong. She could have been tuned into the one thing necessary, even while she worked away, but she was not. I might say, as I'm about to say, she was focused more on being productive. She was not tuned in to the one thing necessary. Okay, Dr. Kretterbach, are you saying to me then, we came to hear an address on time management, and you're gonna now start to make a spiritual point using Martha and Mary? This is the question in your mind. And I say to you, that's exactly right. Because of course, it's always the case that when you get the first things right, everything else falls into place. We've got a time problem, and it's not a small problem that's addressed by small measures. It's a big problem that needs to be addressed by big measures. That's why we've got to go big. You might say, you're not going to tell us how to save time. Isn't that what time management today is supposed to be about? That depends on what you mean by save time. Yes, I think we need to save time, but not in the way that we normally say that, because in fact, we have plenty of time. Our problem is no shortage of time. So let's talk more about the problem. This is where I'm going to get, you know, hey, this is the Thomistic Institute. I'm going to get a little philosophical here. And if it, if it, if it gets to be a little bit much, you know, then honestly, just start to pray for a couple minutes and it too will quickly pass. And then, and then I'll come to some suggestions that might be a little bit more interesting. But in any case, I'm, I'd love to give you a little bit of the principle involved here. So I'm gonna, 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 gonna work you a little bit. Again, if you've done a little philosophical study, great, you're a little better prepared for it. If you haven't, hang with me and let's do our best, all right? I could have tried, but honestly, I wouldn't have been very good at it, to give you a method as to how to make your time more productive. And that method, and there are such methods, there absolutely are such methods, and people get rich writing and selling books to help you make your time more productive. Honestly, if I stood here and gave you a method for how to make your time more productive, honestly, I think I might just be making your 
problem worse. Because I don't think, most likely, you need to be any more productive than you already are. The world tells you, it tells me, to increase productivity and things are gonna get better. The problem in the third world, whatever exactly that condescending term is supposed to mean, is that people aren't productive enough, right? And they need to learn to be more productive like us, right? We have become much more productive, at least by many measures, in recent times. May I be a little facetious? How's that worked out for us as regards what I might call the quality of life? Sidebar, and this is fascinating, perhaps we actually do now have a productivity problem. And I don't mean to say that that's nothing, though it certainly is not my concern this evening. We might actually have a productivity problem. We could talk about how more and more, especially young people, don't have a great work ethic, they don't have a strong sense of responsibility, it's hard to find someone you can hire who you're gonna trust is really gonna work and be productive, and people are wasting time when they're being paid. This is all productivity problem, isn't it? Yes, so I'm not saying that there's no problem in productivity, but I'm gonna put it to you this way. This is an instance of a great philosophical principle expressed so well by Plato and Aristotle. And if you remember nothing else from this evening, I hope you remember this principle. If you treat as higher or more important that which is in fact less important, not only will you lose what is more important, you will destroy what is less important. I will say that to you again. I assure you I did not make this up. Plato and Aristotle saw this, and in a sense, it explains the world in which you live, and maybe more to the point, it often explains our own lives. If you don't put first things first, and treat what is higher as though it is higher or greater. And you take what is lower, and you treat it as though it's higher. Not only do you undermine the greater things that we should have prioritized, you undermine the lower thing that you have overemphasized. Need I give the obvious example in our society? We have prioritized bodily pleasure and we're really bad at it, truth be told. We have prioritized productivity as though it's what defines human life. And lo and behold, society is coming apart at the seams, having, of all things, a productivity problem when that's what we prioritized. But this verifies the principle and shows we gotta go a lot deeper. I'm not concerned about your prior 
about your productivity, but actually, in a beautiful way, we put things first things first, you'll be productive, maybe not in simply a quantitative way, but in the way that productivity is most important anyway, because it's never just about more stuff. Just a few weeks ago, after a Friday visit to my chiropractor, he said very cheerily as I was walking out, have a productive weekend. Now, I mean, this is the bad luck on his part of having a philosopher whose back he's cracking, all right? Because I just couldn't let that one go. So I said, you know, Dr. Darrell, you know, thanks, but actually that's not what I'm looking for this weekend. I mean, because he's a great guy. Dr. Darrell, I said, I mean, think about that. Is that really what you wanted to wish me about this weekend? That it be productive? Is, do you think there's a lot I got to start producing this weekend? Come around my home where I'm blessed with children and a wife. And truth be told, if there's something that needs addressing, it's relationships. It's not productivity. So we need to think about the teleology of time. What's it for? What is it ordered to? Our overemphasis, I suggest, of productivity and other lesser, if real, goods is killing, if you will, our time. More and more, our time is dead, lifeless. Why? Here's my reasoning. All right. Ready? Fasten your seatbelt, if you will, with me. Time, says Aristotle, is the measure or the number of change. What we must focus on here is that time is always a matter of change. Something's changing. Where there's no change whatsoever, there is no time. Time is fundamentally a function of changing reality. Change, according to the tradition, I think this is a very solid philosophical insight, one of the indeed great insights, and then terminological conceptual clarifications in the history of thought, to Aristotle. As St. Justin Martyr said, God was doing something very important in Athens in the thinking of those men. And this was one of the key things that Aristotle did. Change is a going from potentiality to actuality. Motion traditionally is defined as the act of a thing in potentiality in as much as it is in potentiality. Don't worry if that means nothing to you, we're just gonna flow and it's gonna be all right. But potentiality is always for the sake of actuality. Potentiality, I say, is always for the sake of actuality. It's in actuality that things come to rest. This is the fundamental insight of Aristotle's philosophy of nature. It's absolutely central to understanding the world in which we live, and it has been rejected in various and sundry ways for the last half millennium. Things in nature have a natural motion. They're designed to go and they have a potentiality that's waiting to be fulfilled, and they have a natural inclination towards the fulfillment of that potentiality. This is as true for a stone and a tree and me. And it's only when we come to that actualization of the potential that is natural to us that we come to rest. 
in the actualization of potential, a thing comes to rest. So it's always important to think in terms of the end or ends towards which things are moving or changing. Now, that's the background, moving on. A key aspect of Aristotle and St. Thomas's understanding of human nature, now this is really where it gets key, is this. There are some human actions that give meaning to all other human actions. There are some human actions that give meaning to all other human actions. Now maybe right now you're already feeling, ooh, this is gonna connect with that principle from earlier of if you treat what's lower as though it's higher and you get things out of order, you're gonna lose everything. That's exactly right. That's what's going on in this principle. There are some human actions that aren't just right there to, to, to just pluck off the tree. It's not gonna be a human action like walking. It's gonna be a human action that's gonna take a bit, of, a bit of cultivation. There's some human actions that are the end or goal of other human actions to give meaning to them. And without those actions, all of them will be meaningless. These actions, unlike the other lower kinds of actions, are not themselves changes or a way of going somewhere. This is the most kind of abstract thing I'm gonna say. Let's give it our best shot. The most important kinds of things you and I can do, everybody, you don't have to be educated in some profound way to be able to do them, though it's a hard thing to understand. The most important kinds of actions that you and I do are not a going somewhere, but a being somewhere. They're not a going somewhere, they are a way of being somewhere. What is the main example given by Aristotle, verified by St. Thomas, and this is gonna be the key to our whole point this evening, is contemplative actions. Contemplative actions are a way of being. They're not so much changes. They're not a going. They're not a making of something. And this is where that great, powerful word, vision, simply to see and to rest in seeing. There are certain kinds of actions where you're not going anywhere, you're being with something. Vision, contemplation. This, saw Aristotle, is the kind of activity that gives meaning to all other activities, which means that the whole realm of kind of changing, changing, changing is always for the sake of coming to something that is not so much a changing. Contemplation. These actions are the ultimate end and the fulfillment of all other actions. And because of that, they can bring rich meaning. 
and the presence of something that is beyond change because it's so rich and real into all of our other actions. If other actions are ordered to these higher actions, then the whole thing is a symphony of meaning. Would you look at the quotation to start to connect it to time that I have in the first quotation, the bolded sentence. Well, let's go ahead and read. I'm not going to talk so much here about technology. Junger was frying the fish of how our obsession with technology, again, footnote, 1930s, is, 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 is pushing us along in this problem. It's sometimes it's hard to see exactly why, and that's not going to be my main point. In case, let me read you the quotation. Just as technology has changed our idea of space, making us believe that space has become scarcer, that the earth has shrunk, shrunk just so as it changed our idea of time. It has brought about a situation where man no longer has time, where he is destitute of time, where he is hungry for time. I have time when I am not conscious of time which presses in upon me in its empty quality as lifeless time. Here's the great line, and this shows this man had philosophy. He who has leisure, you gotta take that in Aristotle's sense, otherwise this sentence is meaningless. Leisure here does not mean sitting on the beach, although you could, exercise leisure activity sitting on the beach, but sitting on the beach per se is not. You have to take an Aristotle sense of activity that contains its meaning within itself. He who has leisure thereby disposes of boundless time. He lives in the fullness of time. Ready? And then this, this clause is the closer. Be he active or at rest. The man who has real leisure has live time all the time. If we don't know how to do real leisure, all of our time will be clawing. So leisure, real leisure, particularly there, think, and I know, it's, it's, you want to go on a big sidebar here. Well, let's talk a lot more about leisure activities. Well, I'm going to make some suggestions here co coming up. But you know, just in any case, think contemplative actions. This is what vivifies time from within. Even when you're not contemplating, the soul with a contemplative spirit in a contemplative goal has that carry over into everything else and all of the time becomes alive. This is the opposite of obsession with productivity. Here is what makes the daily course of change be transformed. It makes for living time. Again, not only when exercising the higher kind of action, like Mary, Martha's sister, that woman was alive at the feet of Jesus.
But Martha too, were she in her work tuned in to the real relationship between what she was doing and what Mary was doing, even if right now she doesn't get to do what Mary's doing, then Martha's time too could have been alive. And she wouldn't have been anxious because she would have seen the connection and felt it, but she did not. Back to our current problem. Anything that tends to cut off time or even weaken its connection with what transcends time and gives it fullness or meaning will deaden it. So what am I suggesting to you, ladies and gentlemen, that the major source of deadening our time, again, of killing our time, so the ways to, to, to say the problem, but I think this is a great way, is our hyper-focus on productivity. And, and I'm going to challenge you a little bit. If, if you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm not sure I'm caught up in that. Well, first of all, maybe you're not. Maybe you're not so caught up in that. But are you sure you're not? I'm really going to push you. Our hyper-focus on productivity, which is connected to our lack of comprehension of the kinds of activities that really constitute human flourishing, the fullness of life. If time is about productivity, as Western man, I suggest, has lived for several hundred years, and it's really coming home to roost now, if time is about productivity, then we are always looking to see what we can squeeze out of time. Our focus is always on what time produces, rather than on the richness of what can happen in time. We are constantly trying to squeeze more out of it. But something to note about production, this doesn't make it be bad, but it shows something important. It's always about something that comes next. Production is never about the now. Contrast that with what it can look like when our life, our time is well ordered. Picture this, conceptually. All of us, according to state in life, it will vary in its combination, whether you're more of a Martha or a Mary, but either of them put first things first. Our Lord called Martha to recognize the unum necessarium, the one thing that matters. You could say that in a kind of natural way, a la Aristotle, you could say in a supernatural way of her relationship with him. All of us need to have real leisure time. Leisure in Aristotle's sense, activity that has its meaning within it, activity that's for its own sake, especially contemplative time. This time kisses eternity. It brings something of the unchanging into the changing. This, I'm not trying to sound cute here. This is the reality. We are made by nature for what is beyond time. To the extent that we don't bring into time that which is beyond time, our time crumbles, it implodes, and it eats us alive. And we're constantly anxious, looking for things that 
aren't going to fulfill, as the great Augustine said, trying to fill the glass with holes. If we have that real leisure, then all of our labor or work time, not to mention that other little category called amusement, which people today think is what leisure is. This is, this is so huge. Aristotle is the master of this. When a society has no conception of the difference between amusement to what you and I could also call entertainment and leisure, we're shot. There's a such thing as amusement. Leisure is something different. Both amusement and work must get their meaning from leisure, otherwise they're both literally endless. Note our society. Entertain yourself to death or work yourself to death. Pick your poison. They are both because we have no leisure. Because the only real end of any human activity is real leisure. So if we don't have real leisure, I'm going to do a Joseph Pieper on here. If you don't know the great 20th century Thomist German philosopher, P-I-E-P-E-R, Yosef with an F, any book you can get by him, he's astounding. He referred to the tyranny of work. This is his point. Must be footnoted to him. He's the brilliance. The tyranny of work. What's the tyranny of work? When you've lost real leisure, there's neither a real reason to work, and there's also no good reason to ever stop working. So you have the twin problem of people that either don't work at all or work themselves literally to death. The tyranny of work. But now, when there's real leisure, there's a reason to work and a reason, thank God, to stop working. Because in the end, we were not made to work as beautiful as what Martha did is. Another way of stating the conclusion, if your main concern, as that of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, is to become a virtuous person, then there's never a rush in your life. Because there's never a hurry to cultivate virtue. There's an urgency, but it's not something you ever rush any more than you can rush the growing of a tree. You cultivate trees. You don't rush them. You don't try to squeeze something with chemicals out of them the trees can't give you or they shouldn't be forced to give you. In our pride, we, we, we constantly are, 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 are obsessed with squeezing more productivity out of everything, not only people, and thus working them into the ground. Think common laborers, think migrant workers, think white collar, think all of us in many ways. Think the trees and think the earth that we torture. But if our main goal is to become virtuous, it's not a rush, there's nothing about which to be anxious. Fulfill your needs, 
fulfill what's necessary. Yes, this will take work. It will take real work, much work, but not endless work. Why? Because your needs are limited. Your needs, now this is a double entendre, your needs have an end. That means they're only so limited. And also mean they have a purpose. Your bodily needs, they have a purpose. Let's take care of them. And let's start living. A few suggestions. This is a little bit of an eclectic list. I'm just going to kind of, it's not, it's not for most important, the least important. I'm just going to kind of blow through. So this just going to be, just you prepared. It's about a few minutes here. Then I'm going to, I'm going to turn you loose on me. All right. Everything I've said that's frustrated you so far, you just, well, you can't, you can't throw a tomato because Jesus, you might, never mind. Suggestion number one, cultivate a contemplative disposition. People with a contemplative disposition, as I've already suggested, suggested, they always move a little bit more slowly. The highly productive will look down their nose at them. Indeed, they may well snicker. They tend to move more slowly, very purposively. They're very perceptive. They're very humble. They live in the now for there's so much to taste and see that's so good. This is the contemplative spirit. And you and I have to discover it. No one talks about it. No one encourages it. We don't get how-to books on it. Two, be more careful in your work just because, even when no one will notice. Because, as Charles Peggy once wrote, you're just the kind of man that takes care of things. That starts to break the tyranny of the utilitarian, to just be careful just because it's not simply for more production. Third is closely related to that. Make things that are beautiful and make everything you do beautiful. Just because. Write beautifully. Just because. This is what humans do. It is worthy. It redeems time by transcending and breaking the tyranny of practicality and productivity. I don't email like you text. In other words, use punctuation when you email. I'm not trying to be funny. We already write letters, if we write letters anymore, like we email. And now we're starting to email like we text. I'm just, I'm, I, I know I'm being a little bit in your face, just. 
do we not have time anymore for punctuation? I honestly want you to think about that. Number five, practice now prioritizing presence with people. Right now, for many of you, that will be your, your friends, might be your parents, your grandparents. Linger with them just because. If you're called to the married life, practice now. Practice now not to be, if I may, that mother or father who just don't have time. For God's sake, practice now. Maybe that's by going to your grandparents or your parents, if they're still alive, and just spend time with them. Because what's life for? Distinguish wasting time from what only feels like it. A couple things that might well go on the wasting time, watching a lot of news. For most of us anyway, that's going to be a waste of time. Maybe some people have to do it. Be honest with yourself. Do you have to do it or are you just curious? If you're just curious, I don't think it's probably helping us and it's probably genuinely qualifies as a waste of time. Playing video games, I think, is going to be a great candidate of wait for wasting time. I'm not saying every time, all the time, but it's probably a very good candidate for something that should often be called wasting time. Spending much time curating our social media presence, honestly, I think that's probably a waste of time. What's the good that's coming of that? Right, so there are things that we are wasting our time on, and let's, let's look at cutting them out. That's different from getting, getting stuck in traffic when you couldn't help it. It's different from the unexpected need of friends. It's different than when my child gets sick and, I'm, and, and, and I have to stay up all night. This is not ever a waste of time or spending time with the elderly it is never a waste of time. So let's distinguish between what is wasting time and what's not. Final couple of suggestions. Be careful about scheduling. Sometimes scheduling is an unconscious bulwark against the things in our life we should be giving time to. I'll say that one more time, and almost if you don't intuitively feel it, then maybe it's not an issue for you. I know it's an issue for me. I think men, husbands, very often do this. Sorry, I've got a meeting on my schedule. Be careful about scheduling. Sometimes your schedule becomes an unconscious block to the things that we should be even spontaneously putting ourselves in. And finally, circling back to the first one, practice real leisure. And the main suggestion I make for that is live the primacy of Sunday. Let Sunday be the timeless time. God knows 
you know. Sunday is being assaulted at every level. It's, 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 it's been incremental. You get a little in your face. Do you shop on Sunday? Do you work on Sunday? Once upon a time, Christians, not just Mennonites, once upon a time, Christians said an absolute no to that because of what we're talking about, whether they knew it or not. Sunday is to be the timeless time. It is to be absolutely freed from productivity. God commanded it for our good because he knew it would have us come alive. And I close by telling you one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in St. Thomas's writing. He says, live Sunday as the God-given way to start to practice what he made you to do for all eternity. If we do that, then Sunday time is going to enliven all of our time. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. Thank you. So we're going to do a, a few questions. Um, I think we're going to be rooted a lot in the practical here. So we have kind of philosophical principles. Um, feel free to use this time to kind of figure out how to do it. Or if you need clarification on points, uh, feel free to ask that as well. Uh, we'll go for a little while. Um, then when we get closer to wrapping up, uh, we'll start to do some final announcements and then conclude for the happy hour. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm wondering, uh, certainly one push is the highest connectivity and the one which will make us most happy. Uh, but in Aristotle, they did a that no human can contemplate the rest of uh, recreation is necessary for everything. So, what are some activities you can think of that are good form of recreation that dispose you toward acts of contemplation? And that by themselves also, I guess, they're forging good acts. This is an outstanding question. I thank you for asking it. So if you don't mind, I'm just going to take you know, just a moment or two to, to try to answer it rightly. Did you all hear the question? All right. Um, so remember the Aristotelian principle. The end is always the first principle. Start with the end. The end gives the reason for everything else. So here, because both work and amusements are for the sake of leisure, you already, I said, have asked the, the, the right question, and we just need to, to note that. As the great philosophers say, to ask the right question is already to be halfway there. All right? So I'm not trying to embarrass you, but, but, but we, we, we need to note that. This is the way that we look at and we discern about amusement. Not all amusement is created equal. Some amusement lends itself better to preparing you for leisure. 
It's not the same thing. But then again, sometimes, this is the thing, in the richness, it, it, it can bleed into it. Right? This, I, to me, a quick example of that is something like you know, the Sunday family game or the, you know, the Sunday among friends game. Right? That, um, or, or hike. Right? I mean, this is kind of a, hey, we're just going to kind of do this because it's, it's, it's fun, right? Fun, um, amusement. But then certain kinds of activities in the amusements particularly lend themselves, I'll put it this way, especially to human presence. Human presence. Always think rich human presence. What really lends it into in a richer way being together? You know, one of the saddest things I think about the younger generation is they don't know how to be together. They've been robbed of the habits, the kind of activities that are the richer ways of amusements or of work that would have prepared them, that are part and parcel of preparing their soul for a real leisure. This, I don't have any problem with going to see an occasional movie but it's a generation's default position. What are we gonna do? We're gonna watch a movie. It's a passive consumption of entertainment. And let's be frank, in 99 out of 100 times, it doesn't lead to a great discussion. Right? Although sometimes, if it does, that's great. That's always, that's better. And that's where we have an eye to, all right, then that's exactly what we're trying to cultivate. So we look to what kinds of amusement will be more kind of richer, what, what's the, you know, it's, it's different ways of saying this, what's the truth content or density? Dietrich von Hildebrand, who has some great lines, said this, the, the richer the thing that you look at together, the greater power it has to unite you. This is an excellent point. This is like reading Shakespeare together draws people together much more than playing a video game together. It's, it's just, it's, it's a real difference. So you're, you're looking in your entertainment, and just very quickly I want to say this, I, it wasn't in the lecture, but, I, but you've given me the opportunity to say it. Good work is a way of cultivating in your soul a disposition towards leisure. Good work. And I want you to worry about what makes some work be gooder than other works? What work is more disposing the soul and even the body towards real leisure activity versus other works? I'll leave that as a teaser. Anything else at the moment? Any other questions? You're welcome. Thank you. So I was thinking about what you said in regards to individual needs are and I can certainly speak for myself, but I have the capacity to meet those needs. But on a greater scale, there within the world where there are there's a limited demand for resources, and I'm curious if there's going to be large scale. You ask if I, I am, if you don't mind, going to give a quotation from your handout sheet 
is very relevant to this. And that's the quotation from St. Thomas's commentary on the politics towards the bottom of the page. If they were to strive to live virtuously, they would be content with things sufficient to sustain nature. This, honestly, it's a whole nother lecture topic, is, I think, one of the most zinging insights into the problem of our age. If they, us, people, were to strive to live virtuously, if that were our main goal, we would be content with things sufficient to sustain nature. But since they omit this effort and they want to live according to their own will, in other words, not virtuously, each of them strives to acquire things with which to satisfy the individual's desire. And because the desire of human beings has no limit, unlike your needs, which do have a limit, our, our concupiscible desires have no limit. They desire without limit things whereby they can satisfy their desire. This is a condemnation of, of, of the unlimited characteristic of our economy that appeals to unlimited avarice, that encourages people to accumulate wealth without limit. Charles Dickens is an amazing author. Someday when we reread, sorry, I'm answering your question. When you reread A Christmas Carol and you look at Scrooge, it's easy to lose sight because it's so extreme. Thank goodness we're not like that. But it's a, it's a profound expression of the disease of our age. And he knew that and is directly opposed to Christmas and the happiness that brings tears to the eyes of Mr. Cratchit in Tiny Tim, whose needs, like everybody's needs, are very limited. And for a good man like Mr. Cratchit, he doesn't need a whole lot. He doesn't even want a whole lot. You used a phrase that some, I, I, that, and we won't have time to, but I, I, if you use the phrase unlimited demand for limited resources, I don't think that's true. Or if there is an unlimited demand for limited resources, that is a result of avarice. There is no unlimited need. And this is the problem of the evil of a corporate context that sees as okay, always seeking more wealth. That is a problem. Christians have always recognized that as a problem and in many ways that, that as Christians, we've kind of given up the ghost on calling a spade a spade and saying the unlimited pursuit of wealth does not, in fact, simply trickle down to people below. It very often leaves out people below. So these are very, and, and I'm not speaking here of political policy, that'd be a very dangerous thing to do in this crowd. So I, I won't purport to do that, although I know I did prick you a little bit, perhaps right there. So I would just say, we need to preach more fulfillment of needs, but that, that they in fact are not unlimited and try to bring our desires into accord with our needs and start to live, this is a very JP2 thing, 
avoiding consumerism. We need to start to live smarter. We need to start to live more minimalist. I think that that is in any case would be a good witness as regards some of the great things you've said right there. Are there any, there was a gentleman back there who raised his hand. Get ready and also if you are gonna raise your hand because he's gonna cut us off, this guy right here, if you don't pop another hand up, go. So, so, so I'm sorry, just, just tr really try to speak into that mic more forcefully. Um, what I, sorry, what I heard was, is it isn't con, is contemplation itself a kind of work? Is is is, is that what I? Okay, great. First of all, great, great, great. Um, as and this connects to an earlier question. No, there is no perfect expression of an of a of an action that is fully for itself. God's action is the eternal actuality of, as it were, perfectly inhering in himself in community of knowledge and love. That's the pattern for everything. The closest that we come to that is, is contemplative activities of knowledge and love, ultimately between persons, toward a person, done together with persons. And here, this is where your philosophers like Aristotle, they're ready to make the distinction for you. There's a distinction that it takes effort, does not mean that it goes into the category of work. One characteristic of work is that it takes effort. Contemplation, too, takes effort. But work is not defined by effort. Work is defined by having a product outside of itself. Contemplation takes effort. All of the most important human activities will take some effort, although when they become more habitual, it becomes a, a matter of greater ease. Contemplation absolutely has to, be, has to be cultivated and is the fruit of much good work, work in the proper sense also. But I, the main point there being that, that it takes effort, you're 100% right, especially in this life, especially in view of Christianity, overcoming our fallen nature, one great day, it won't take that kind of effort anymore. And it will be the fruition under grace of the efforts that we've made. Have, have I addressed your question, sir, or have I missed it? Follow up afterwards, great, super. Anything, anything else, there's one right there. Uh, um, this year.
right. Did you all hear the question? So how, how, how would I explain a certain richness? Because I said earlier, and, I, and I'm glad you invoked it again, that sometimes there are people that wouldn't understand this distinction, but will live it very well. That I, I, I'm utterly, utterly convinced. I have a profound passion about this. That a key for each of us in our own lives and as part of a kind of the new evangelization is, is to live life more fully, right? That's so John, St. John Paul II, right? right, right. Li live life and live with hope, live in a full way that other, that other people will see. Simple things, presence, real communion between persons. I love to emphasize the household because households, even if it's not a household in the full normal sense of family, all of you to some extent have a household. I encourage you to think in terms of how to intensify the life in your household. Our society is constantly blowing out the innards of households and taking us everywhere else. But household is the daily context for life on a humane scale. So, so the simple things of presence, I'm gonna to quote to you, you know, at the bottom of the page there is a quotation from the man who's my father-in-law who is going to pass from this life within a couple of days, most likely and I've been spending some time with him. And he, the other day, I write down different things that he said, and his eyes were closed, and he said, the celebration of time is in birth, aging, and death. I'm gonna suggest this. We need to get closer to the fundamental stuff of life that so often has been, has been put under the astroturf, as it were. Being with the sick, being together with our friends in rich contexts. Today, that so often will mean untechnologized. Why? Not because the technology is bad, but because practice shows that it hinders. It's hard to know how to say this, but I say this word with all the power I can possibly muster. Personal presence. The younger generation, you can see it in their eyes, they don't feel and know how to live personal presence and relationship. It's real and profound. That is the natural introduction into the supernatural relationship that is the fulfillment of our life. This is what the simple people can understand. They don't need to have a single one of these complex concepts, but they can have very good instincts where they end up saying things like, no, I'd rather sit on the porch. And they'll say, for God's sake, why are all those people in front of their screens? What are they doing? And they're positively uncomprehending. But one thing they know connaturally is that they were made to live with people and to be alive and to rejoice in things together and to sing together and to dance together. And this is the stuff of life. And this is why heaven is referred to as singing and as dancing, but, but real, not the singing, not the, not, the, not the disordered music that's so common today, not the disordered wiggling of dancing that's so common today. Not trying, to be, not trying to be negative. It's about life. Gotta get back life. That, that's, that's the simple way I try to say it.
just, just cut me off. As you can see, I will not stop. So just if you want to leave, you can, you can, you know. Uh, let's give it up for Dr. Cutterback. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.